You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How are you? Good, good. Looking forward to this episode. So we're talking about development today. Um, So, of course, there are different stages of development, and um, I'm interested in the adolescent piece, but what what are we going to use as our framework for this conversation? Well, Eric Erickson is a really interesting uh, psychologist, really, from, uh, from Germany, and he developed a lot of Freud's theories around psychosexual development. And Freud, as many of us might know, was very centered upon our sexual development. And Erickson, I think, gave it more nuance by saying, actually, there's psychosocial development that happens to children and to adults and to people in late adulthood. He goes all the way through our lives. And he he wrote a book in, in the 1950s called Childhood and Society. And then he further worked on these theories. And they're really good, well-established stages that every healthy and developing individual should pass through from infancy right up to late adulthood. And you kind of almost have a theme of each stage. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the stages later on, I think people will recognize them depending on their age and stage. They'll say, yeah, I get it. These are very workable frameworks to put around how we are challenged. So the eight-year-old has very different challenges to the 28-year-old. Forget about the actual kind of um, the context, but just purely what's on the mind of somebody at 28 versus what's on the mind of somebody at 48. They're very different, very different themes. And so um, what the idea is, the grand plan is that we reconcile our, our stages and we move through them and we become more mature each time as we kind of, we grapple with them go through all the tasks involved stages and we move on to the next stage. So it's, it's a fabulous framework, I think, to work with, to understanding the human. And Erickson framed each stage as kind of a competition between two outcomes. So if you're able to consolidate your task at that stage versus what happens if you're unable to. And of course, you know, there are, there are lots of theories of how we develop and whether it's perfectly linear in that way or not. Um, but I think overall, there's a lot that we will recognize in ourselves from our own development as we talk about these stages. And I just want to point out that, you know, even though Eric Erickson was a German psychologist writing, I think in, in the fifties, um, there's, yeah. there's all kinds of examples across cultures and across time of people's lives kind of moving from one stage to the other. Lots of different cultures have, for example, rituals, coming of age processes. So the process of growing up, though it might look a little bit different across cultures and you know different ethnicities, we all have to move from you know our baby stage to our childhood stage to our older childhood stage into adulthood and so on and so on. And it's really interesting when you look at religions and you look at different cultures and you realize there was real wisdom in, let's say, the christening for the child. I'm a Catholic, let's say, well, I was born one. 
at the beginning, because that's kind of, in a way, celebrating the arrival of the baby. And then there's another uh, tradition, a big ceremony around seven years old for kind of middle childhood. And then there's another tradition for the confirmation at around 12, which is ushering in this new extraordinary um, adolescent period. And, you know, the, it really makes sense that, the, that there was an awful lot of wisdom through the ages with these ceremonies. And they didn't come from a, a vacuum. They came from an acknowledgement that we move through different stages. And then the psychologists arrived in the 19th century and they said, yeah, we can put psychology on top of these ceremonies and they make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about this once. And before we get into the kind of theory, you talked on a podcast about some kind of traditional Irish ceremony, I think, that was like a coming of age for your daughter. I don't remember what it was called, but can you like, <laughs> tell that story? Well, it wasn't very Irish, but when it was, it was quite Irish. It was kind of a druidic ceremony we did for my children rather than because I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a Catholic, but I'm not I don't believe in God or anything. And my, my husband's a Protestant. So we did this a kind of a, a greening ceremony and it was really beautiful. It's a kind of shamanic ritual. And again, through the same stages you have at the at babyhood, you have then at seven or eight, and then you have again at 12 or 13. So it all makes sense that the, the, the ceremonies are very corresponding with the stages we have in childhood. And um, it was beautiful. My, my, the, the, there was a real connection between the mother, the girl and the mother line. So my mother was asked to give her a special gift and a few words and then on the other side, my 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 husband's her father's father. So the father's father and the mother's mother both contribute to the ceremony, which is a lovely idea. And you pick different kind of people who are special in their life and they provide a different kind of gifts like a poem and things like that. It was a really lovely ceremony. It was beautiful, actually. It was really lovely. I suppose I was a bit nervous in Ireland. Uh, the communion, the Holy Communion can be very much a materialistic kind of extravaganza that everybody just sends money. And I wanted to get away from that and have something a little bit more richer. And we really did. It was lovely. It was really That's lovely. Nice. That's an example of kind of a practice that, that provides, I guess, some kind of a, a marker and a memory and an entire experience around the process of moving into this new phase of life for your daughter. I just, I think that's a nice story to start us off. Yeah. Okay. So t let's talk about Eric. What are his stages? OK, well, he had eight stages that he thought we would go through. And if you don't success successfully reconcile each stage, it might come back and come back and come back as a theme that needs to be kind of resolved. And so the, the idea is you do reconcile it. So first of all, there's infancy where you're born and you arrive on Earth and effectively you think, is it friend or foe? Are there hostile forces? Am I fed? Am I kept warm? Am I safe? Can I trust? Because that's the psychosocial crisis of that stage. Can I trust the universe or do I distrust the universe? And therefore, you know, that could kind of hang on into your life because you weren't fed or you weren't looked after in those couple of years. Between two and four, there's an extraordinary stage where it's your kind of your autonomy and you kind of realize, oh, my God, I'm not actually umbilically attached to my caregiver and I can run. For freedom. And so that's why children might run, dash out of a supermarket, like <laughs> as in free at last, because they realize I'm autonomous. I could do my own thing. And, you know, with that comes shame and doubt of did I do the right thing? I'm autonomous. I'm my own person. Did I do the right thing? And the psychosocial crisis mm -hmm. that they have to kind of 
work through is that my contribution, my autonomy is good enough. I don't need to be shamed for being who I am. And we can get shamed at that age that they're not a good boy or a good girl. And that can really shape somebody. Then you go on into early childhood and there's kind of initiative and and guilt that that's the psychosocial crisis that they have to go through. And there's a sense of purpose and they can get very kind of purposeful at that age and they know what they want to do and they know what they don't want to do. I do think middle childhood, there's a real, it gets quite serious, the psychosocial stages then. And the middle childhood is a sense of competence. That's the kind of overriding theme of this psychosocial stage. Like I say, developed by Ericsson in the 50s, but very well established now as an accepted framework to understand children and people and adults. And so in in and around from about eight or nine till in, in around about 12, there's the kind of trying to think of competency. What am I good at and what am I not good at? And if a child feels that they're not good at something, they can be very obsessed with who's good at maths, who's good at dancing, what am I good at? Why am I good at it? Who's who's second in the class at at English and who's first in the class? And there's a real emphasis on that. And if they don't find something that they're good at, they can that can reoccur during their their life of I I'm inferior because I don't have competency. And so it's really helpful for parents to find whether it's creativity or problem solving or being good with people, some sort of sense of competency for children pre-adolescence, because it really matters. And then you come to adolescence and it's identity versus role confusion. And this is the one we're going to really concentrate on in this podcast. But I just want to continue on because there are a few because all of our listeners are in one stage or another. So Eric Erickson originally said that was between in around. 12, 13 to about 19. He then extended it out. He said very intelligent people have a longer sense of identity confusion and that it goes on longer. And he did do some fabulous, really interesting kind of psychobiographies of some geniuses. And he pointed out that it, the, lo- the, the, the more intelligence you bring to the party, the longer you are working yourself through this stage, which is kind of interesting. Then he said, after that, you're in your 20s now and you've got this stage of you become obsessed with relationships and love and your psychosocial crisis there is intimacy versus confusion. And when I think of myself in my 20s and 30s, worrying about, is he the one? Isolation. Yeah, yeah, isolation. Intimacy versus isolation. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Intimacy versus, my mistake, I was reading the other one, confusion. Yeah, intimacy versus isolation where you're wondering about... uh, who is the one for me? Who am I going to marry? What's the depth of my relationship? Is it the correct relationship? And anybody who's between 20 and 40 will be nodding, going, yeah, yeah, I know this one. I know it very well. And because you're worried, am I going to be alone? Is there anybody to fit me? Where am I with this? Then you move on. Thankfully, I'm out of that one. and I'm in this one, which is between 40 and 60. <laughs> and where you're thinking of generativity and stagnation. As in, what am I producing? What's the point of me? What is my purpose? What is the what? What, what am I producing, really? You know what I mean? And then after that, yeah. when you go into your sixties, you start thinking of what is my legacy? What is what was the integrity of my life? What was my purpose? What was the meaning? What am I leaving behind? So the beautiful stages, and we go through them all. They become bigger as we get older, but in childhood, we're we're belting through them quite fast, and. This is very well established by any therapist, any psychologist. We all know the stages of psychosocial stages and they're they're really interesting. It's well known 
for adolescents to be seeking identity because that's exactly what they should be seeking. They should be all about their identity versus role confusion. And a key part of the psychosocial stages, you jump into it with authenticity and with full vigor. So you jump into your role. You can't pretend to be doing something. You have to completely, completely embody it so that you understand this role. Mm -hmm. It's not about just lip service. It's quite a, a deep process. And that's, I think, what I think you're most interested with in terms of gender identity. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've thought about this a lot. I've done a presentation on this for a workshop a while back. And it's so important for kids to do things with a sense of conviction. And um, we know from working with teens and any parents out there who has a teenager, you you just see that this kind of different person takes over during these adolescent years and it can become very turbulent and they are dealing with really difficult things. You know, I I know that sometimes uh, teenagers will say, you know, my parents think I'm just going through this because I'm a teenager. And there's something about that, of course, that's true, right? Because none of us in our 30s and 40s look back and say, you know, at 15, I did know exactly what was going on. No, of course you didn't. But also... It feels so intense and real and important. And they are really grappling with this incredibly big existential question of who am I? It's destabilizing. And that's why they cling and grasp and just um, kind of search for all the explanations they can try to find and sometimes get very fixated on one or the other. So I thought today we could talk about what are these tasks, you know, and, and how does the concept of gender identity fit into all of it? And the key thing is that when we say it's just a phase, it feels so dismissive that we need to be very wary yes. of it. We need to be very wary of that as a phase, a phrase, and instead kind of understand that to say it's a phase isn't honoring the experience. It's more like it's 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 a it's a crisis maybe or it's a it's an experience it's an intensity it's a focus it's anything but a phase really would be what I would say to just be very wary of that because it feels so dismissive and it doesn't really give any sort of respect to the intensity of the experience that people are going through when they're going through a psychosocial crisis. By the way, it was uh, it was Eric Erickson. Sorry, sorry. It was Eric Erickson who uh, who coined the phrase "identity crisis," um, which is pretty much what yes. we could call this. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just thinking about the fact that everything is a process, you know. And when a teenager is being a teenager, just because they will change later in life, it doesn't mean that experience at that moment isn't real and important. And so, I think it's very. It's very easy to be dismissive of teenagers, but of course, working with them all the time, I've really come to respect that they're going through a really important process. Yeah. And in a way that the, the teenage identity or the teenage personality is often very dismissive. So we adults can easily meet their dismissiveness with a kind of a flippant dismissiveness back. And I can see why we do. And I do it myself, frankly. But we have to be wary of it because What's, what's extraordinary about teenagers is while they're very dismissive of everything to do with adults, that is right and appropriate. Up until around about the age of 12, everything you say as an adult as a, or as a parent is 
meat and drink to a child and they're taking it in and you are telling them what you think of the government, what you think of COVID, what you think of their schools and they Mm -hmm. take it all in like a sponge and then around about the age of 12 they turn over and they turn you off as if you're the radio, they turn you right down and they turn up all the other influences and that is exactly natural and developmentally appropriate for them and all the other influences might be TikTok, there might be YouTube videos, it might be their friends, it might be their music and their, their teachers and developmentally that's what they should be doing, bringing in all the other influences so at around about the age of 20 they can come out fully formed having taken in all the influences and become themselves not a clone of anybody but it can feel very rejecting from uh, uh, the parents behalf that they've literally everything I value they have pushed away everything I I stand for they now say no to and I'm like yeah that's so that they won't become a clone of you they're trying to find themselves they need to turn you down so that they can shut you up and find themselves (laughs) And that's it's very hard to suffer that, but it's actually developmentally appropriate. Well, you're talking about the task of dealing with authority. That is one of the important tasks. And so during these adolescent years, young people have to negotiate a new way of responding and integrating the messages that they've gotten, both well, well, from many places, one from the parental authorities, which is what you're describing, how a kid will reject everything that the parents have valued their whole lives, and also kind of social authority. So what your school tells you, you might question it. What authority figures tell you, you might question it. So this is really an age of kind of questioning authority. And it, just to kind of bring in some observations from clients I've worked with, I think sometimes kids are actually having a hard time with this. We've talked about the overly compliant rapid onset gender dysphoria kid. And I think when a kid is having a hard time appropriately questioning authority, they end up questioning authority in kind of unhealthy ways because they're so compliant to authority when really they should be rebelling a little bit in a more kind of appropriate way to rebel. What do you think? Yeah, that's exactly it. And there's quite a few different tasks in each stage. And we're not going to get into all the stages because then it would turn into a lesson. We're just going to focus on the adolescent stage. And so in the adolescent stage, they're going through role identity. They're talking about confusion. This is what's their main themes. And within that, there's tasks of development. And you have to go through each of these tasks to come out um, functioning from that stage. Would that be a, a correct kind of analysis of it? Do you have the tasks there? Mm-hmm. Do you know, could you look them well, We've covered one, which is, yeah. Yeah, so dealing with authority is one. Coming up with um, kind of new ways of understanding things. So kind of psychological flexibility, trying to figure out your personal system of truth and morality. That's another There's dealing with the body and the sexual development of your body and trying to figure out who you are sexually attracted to and what is your kind of intimate life going to look like. Uh, There's also the domain of your social experience. So where do you fit in with others? How do you be unique while also having a group that you fit in with? So that's a very important, complicated task. And, um, Lastly, there is the domain of judgment. So trying to figure out how to delay gratification, how to deal with consequences, how to make decisions and develop some kind of wisdom. So those are the main tasks at the adolescent stage. 
Yeah, I, I rem- it comes to mind a lovely quote I saw by Anna Freud. It's from a book that I'm reading at the moment that I really recommend for anybody who's having difficulty with teenage girls. It's by Lisa Damour and it's called Untangled. And she's guiding teenage girls through the seven transitions into child, into adulthood. But it's a lovely book. But this is a quote from Adole- from Anna Freud. And it's called Adolescence from 1958. And it's so relevant. So I'll read it out here. So as Anna Freud says, while an adolescent remains inconsistent and unpredictable in her behavior, she may suffer, but she does not seem to me to, to me to be in need of treatment. I think that she should be given time and scope to work out her own solution. Rather, it may be her parents who need help and guidance so as to be able to bear with her. There are few situations in life which are more difficult to cope with than an adolescent son or daughter during the attempt to liberate themselves. Hmm. What really strikes me is that she recommends time and scope. And actually what sometimes happens is the exact opposite. A teenager starts to have a bit of a teenage crisis and everyone in their world zeroes in, locks down, focuses. And I say it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall. Parents just do all the things they can to try and fix it really, really quickly. I need to get my daughter in therapy. I need to fix it. What's going on? What should I do? Ah. It's like... It's just the opposite of what is recommended in that beautiful know, quote by as, Anna Freud. As the mother of an adolescent, I have to say <laughs> that there's nothing that strikes terror in our heart more than when our children are unhappy. And we can handle it up until the age of 12 mm-hmm. because, frankly, we can do what we need to do to make them happy. They're unhappy. We can fix it. And then suddenly we're unmanned as parents <laughs> and suddenly we can't fix it. They're unhappy and they're, they're nothing. You could do cartwheels. No, and there's nothing you can and do. And I can dance all <laughs> over the place. I could dance from here to Texas and back and I still won't be able to make her happy. And it's a frightening. You could make me happy. <laughs> dance to Texas. But it's a frightening <laughs> horror horror struck kind of realization of the parent and that's what she says the parent needs support to kind of because we live in this era of happiness happiness and positivity and we've got this extraordinary fear of suicide Mm -hmm. kind of as a shadow I think and certainly in Ireland we do of and a shadow of fear of mental illness and a fear of of kind of things going wrong in adolescence and it's become so heightened and big that we're frightened. When our children are unhappy, we become very frightened. And our children inevitably become unhappy yeah. in adolescence. And I think it's a really frightening time for a parent. It is. It is. And, you know, not to make light of the situation, you know, it's also striking to me that on one hand, you know, the kid is learning that they have some power that they can wield. And, of course, the parent on the other side of that is starting to feel powerless and, um, you know, I want to make sure that we go through these stages, but I, I want to point out that there's not, um, there seems to be this idea in our, in our culture that once kids are teenagers, there's literally nothing you can do whatsoever. But um, attachment therapists like Gabor Mate, for example, and Gordon Neufeld, they actually say, you know, this is an important time to lean in and actually build your relationship with your children during the teenage years, precisely because they're so bad at making judgments. They're so easily influenced by peers that they really need the parental support and the parental guidance 
more at that time than ever. So ironically, right when kids are pushing their parents away, it's actually the time when when parents should be leaning in with strategic support, not to kind of um, hinder their autonomy, but to give them some kind of guide rails because it's and such a turbulent time. Gordon, I felt they wrote that brilliant book, Hold On to Your Kids, and it was such an evocative title where they were basically saying when they're going through that, like you say, don't roll your eyes and say that's teenagers for you. Instead, come in right. on it. And I, I find I find it a very interesting read and, and certainly very very shaping in my understanding of adolescence. I do think that there's real, as Eric Erickson would have said, there's real kind of um, issues to be kind of handled through this. Because as you said, one of the tasks of adolescence is to develop new ideas. And so they're, they're, the, the child is open, the 12, 13 year old is very open to new ideas. And right now, the new idea on the block is critical theory. Right now, that is what they're going to handle. Like when I was a kid, it was different theories were kind of coming in. And so whatever is in the zeitgeist at the moment is what they will be fed. And that's why it's very important that you become aware of it. And it's very easy for parents to just go, oh, my God, kids nowadays, I don't get it. TikTok, whatever, you know, uh, Xbox, I don't get it. I hate it all, Snapchat. And I think we have to as parents is to kind of even pay somebody to, to, to walk us through it like a class. Tell me about Snapchat. Tell me about <laughs> TikTok. How does it work? So that you can have a working knowledge of the swimming pool that they're swimming in. Because it's like we're the baby pool, the parents. And they're in the swimming pool mm -hmm. of the beginnings mm -hmm. of adulthood. And down at the end is the deep end. And sometimes they sweep down to the deep end. But actually, sometimes they have to come out and come back into the baby pool, which is where we are. And they push away quick. And they go back into the, the bigger pool. But I think that's what's happening there. There's a lot of, there's a dance of looking for safety from the parents and then pushing the patient, the parents mm -hmm. away because they want, don't want to feel like a baby. And at the same time, us parents have to kind of, we can feel like a, like a rag doll that they punch because they're, they're, they're trying different things. And yet I think we need to have a working knowledge of what they're swimming in. Yeah, and, and this is really important, especially since we'll bring in the gender identity piece, because kids will come to their parents with all of these new definitions and labels, and they kind of lecture their parents. And I'll hear kids say, well, my parents aren't uneducated about gender, they need to learn about it. And sometimes parents will feel really intimidated because they don't know this new lingo. And so as kids are understandably searching for new ideas... The, the idea that there are all of these genders that just because your transphobic parents never taught you about it, it's like this brand new world of information they feel they've accessed. And that's really, really tempting to an ideologically open, curious teenager. And so you're right. There's a lot of information that parents need to get caught up on so that they can at least speak with some confidence about what they think or what they believe, rather than just being bowled over by all these new ideas that their kids bring home. I think that's so key to what's happening right now is that the child comes with lingo. Like, do you include trans women in your feminism? It's, it's a question I heard mm, a mm -hmm. give a parent today or this week. And it's <sighs> like the, the parent is wide eyed going, wow, I, I, I'm so impressed that the child is asking me this. I haven't considered whether I include trans women in my feminism. 
uh, I'm 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 at sea. I'm intimidated and I'm impressed. And uh, I would say, mm, well, if you knew what they were swimming in, you wouldn't be quite so impressed. You'd realize they're actually spouting lines that they're getting from TikTok and they're getting from Snapchat and uh, YouTube and places like that. And it's it's. It's it's very half developed. I remember as a kid learning my kind of dogma and it was so half developed and undeveloped and I knew my lines, but I didn't have a depth of knowledge. And That's right. I think we have to remember that they know their lines, but they don't have the depth of knowledge. Why would they? They're 12. And That's right. <laughs> so so five years previous, there were seven. You know? And so we, we there's no point in giving us, because I think a lot of us parents, and of course I would include myself, we can tend to think of our children as these geniuses, and they're probably not, and we're more likely to think <laughs> all of us. And we have to be really kind of understanding of, yeah, knowing your lines and knowing your lingo, it's very impressive. But as parents, if you want to understand where your kid is coming from, go and learn it. Ask somebody who knows. Tell me about queer theory. Tell me about, you know, what she's talking about when she says this, because actually your wisdom, carry your wisdom, carry your authority as a parent, because I'm finding too many parents are intimidated by the new lingo. Frankly, it's like learning another. Learn 20, 30 words and you've got it. Learn 20 or 30 concepts and you've got it. It's not that much. It can feel bedazzling. And actually, once you sit down and learn it, you'll think, okay, well, it was doable, Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's confounding, though. I mean, I know a lot of parents will say, you know, my, my daughter, she's not masculine at all. How does she think she's a boy? I just don't get it, you know? And and I try to tell parents, you have to get familiar with these concepts and you have to read between the lines because sometimes your child is saying things to you and they don't even know exactly what they mean by that. You know, parents will say, well, I asked her a bunch of times, what does she mean? And she just didn't know. She kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. It's because they don't exactly know. And, you know, that's why I, I think kids need to develop on their own time. And it's normal for kids to latch on to something that they're not really 100% clear on. Because, again, they have a 12-year-old brain. How clear can they be on anything? So this is normal. And so one of the tasks of, of adolescence is developing new ideas. Another is social context, kind of social sensitivity. Never again in your entire life will you be more sensitive to social judgment as you will be between around 12 and 20. In and around those ages, you will be like extraordinarily sensitive social judgment. And so you should be. It's your task at that point. At different other ages, you might look back and think they're so obsessed with what their what their friends think. And I'm like, yeah, well, so were you at that age. And no, you're not now at this age because you're in another stage. And so therefore you're obsessed with maybe your job because you're looking for purpose because you're in your stage. So we're all in our stages and there's no point in looking down on teenagers who are obsessed with social judgment. However, it can be very shaping. Being obsessed with social judgment can be very shaping. It can be a very difficult and isolating place to be. And I remember it myself as a kid. When you're kind of seeking social approval and yet you're odd, (laughs) as I was, (laughs) you're in a really funny place. You're in a really scary place because you know you're odd and yet you also want social approval. So what do you do? You look for your tribe. That's yeah. what you do. Of course you do. Or or you become really flexible and you're willing to do whatever the, the cool thing is to do. Then eventually you feel like you are 
faking it and then you look for your tribe later or you know the in-group out-group tribalism really rears its head in teenagehood you see cliques you know why do you think high schools have cliques you know we hate the jocks we're the theater kids we hate the theater kids we're the band kids i mean whatever it is this really becomes important and you know gender identity also emphasizes cis versus trans and you know dr Littman's research indicates that along with recognizing these gender dysphoric feelings coming up in their kids a lot of parents reported that kids became very anti uh cis like they were very against anything cis and so i think that that gender identity really exacerbates this this social task that teenagers are trying to accomplish by creating very clear in-group and out-group. Yeah. And like Eric Erickson pinpointed a question for each stage. And the question for the, the, the stage of adolescence, the psychosocial stage, was who am I? Who am I? And it's such a big question. And I remember at the start of that stage, when I was 12, I didn't know who I am. I remember a plaintive line in my diary. And I remember I really worried about it is when I said, I don't know if I'm too fat or too thin. And I thought, bless. So sweet. No, I I genuinely was fretting. Which am I? I I can't figure it out. I'm one of them and I don't know which I am, poor little chicken. Because I had no no context of who I was. I, I, I had no sense of who I was. I just, I, I was completely at sea. What did I look like? How did I appear? Who was what? I, I? I just had no idea who I was. And we forget that. They're coming across bolshy and assured because they should be, because it's their roles and they're trying on different roles. And they're coming out as if they know their stuff when honestly they're all over the place. And they're saying genuinely to themselves in their quietest voice, they're saying, who am I? Well, they're they're asking this question about their their gender identity too. I mean, this is exactly what we're seeing now, and um, it's very frightening to not know who you are. And I can just remember feeling the desperate need to find that shore. If you're kind of lost at sea, you just want to find solid ground. And for a lot of kids, discovering an identity kind of does double duty. It gives you an in group. It gets you friends. And you get to claim with some certainty, even if it's posturing, like, well, I know who I am. I'm this person. And I, I, when I was a kid, I didn't know who I was, but now I, now I know. And I, I've had enough clients in therapy and I'm sure you've had teenagers who are agonized over, I don't know whether I'm pangender or whether I'm gender fluid. And they're genuinely agonizing over it because they didn't ask to live in a world that's obsessed with categories. They live in a world that's obsessed with categories. And so they're trying to find their category. Back in my day, I suppose we were trying to find it in a different way, but it was very much the same thing. Who am I? Where do I fit? What is my context? What is my tribe and where do I fit? And it can feel really alienating for parents to look at this and say, what are they like saying I'm I'm lesbian one day and I'm I'm bisexual another day when they've never even kissed anybody. What are they on about? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, actually, yeah, I know you could dismiss it and laugh at it because it is funny. However, honestly, there's a real agonized existential cry from them, which is, who am I? Yeah. 
Another domain or another task that they have to attend to is the domain of the body. It just coming coming to terms with first of all the the fact that their body is changing, the hormonal changes that they are going through, and as you touched on, figuring out their sexual identity. So these are really important parts of adolescence. And um, when you have gender identity placed on top of it, it unfortunately makes it very easy to avoid this task, avoid coming to terms with your body as it is, because that's a difficult thing to come to terms with. And um, I I see this being really difficult for some of my clients who I think in, in another era would have presented maybe as like an eating disorder client or something like that. They are now struggling with their gender in their body and not wanting their secondary sex characteristics and not liking how curvy they are. And to me, that sounds a lot like how an eating disorder might have shown up in another time. And the hatred of the breasts is really notable. And, you know, whether the boys want breasts or the girls hate their breasts, it does feel very much a reflection on the obsession with breasts that that has been in a constant in our in our world. They're not only are they trying to figure out who am I and what am I and who, who are my friends and who are my tribe, but they're also trying to figure out what is my sexuality in a world that is kind of obsessed with sexuality? And some of them have none, as far as I can see. They haven't budded. They haven't grown. Others have one that's very influenced by porn, and they can't quite figure out whether their their sexual growth or interest is very porn-induced, or is it that they, 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 followed, they followed it? I would just say, if you know anything about porn, and it's worth any parent who does have a uh, adolescent it's worth kind of make sure you school yourself a little bit about the porn industry because the algorithms are such that that they continuously invite the person who's watching porn to watch something a little bit darker and a little bit more mm-hmm. um uh, transgressive why because the testosterone fueled brain is seeking novelty and so the porn industry have figured that out because frankly they're geniuses who are trying to make an awful lot of money and so the algorithms work in a way that they're constantly inviting a slightly more transgressive, more um, novelty-driven clip the next time. And these adolescents don't realise that they're at the mercy of a huge multi-billion industry. And they're ending up in very dark places. And a lot of adolescents I've met, especially boys, I have to say, but definitely girls and more and more often girls, are Mm -hmm. freaked out and disturbed by the porn they're watching. They're watching some really, really frightening, disturbing porn, going to even paedophilia and things like that. And they didn't start there. They've ended up there through kind of being invited continuously to darker and darker corners of the Internet. And they're desensitized throughout this process. You know, like when you first discover your physiological arousal, everything can get you aroused. I mean, that's why... We, we have these kind of funny stories of boys in their teenage years. They see, you know, a bra ad and they get an erection because it's just so it's such a minor thing. But to them, it's such a big deal. And by desensitizing your sexuality and what you are aroused by, you are kind of ushering kids into a direction they may not have otherwise gone. And I think to complicate matters, it's probably hard for us to appreciate how confusing this is. But there's also this kind of social justice angle on top of the sexuality piece that is really common in wherever kids are, like TikTok, Reddit, Tumblr, Discord, whatever. And 
being, quote, sex positive is considered very important. And look, I am no prude. I've had a crazy kind of life in my own development. But but to say that you have to be positive about everything, even if you don't like it, that's probably incredibly confusing and destructive. And one more piece is just that now sexual orientation is framed as being based on gender identity. So imagine, you know, you're 13, 14, you're just starting to masturbate and you're just starting to figure out what you're attracted to. And you go on, let's say forums, because that's where kids go just to talk about it or see what other people say. And if you say, you know, I like, I think I like girls, that means you've included transgender girls. And the functional definition of a transgender girl is just any any male who says they're a girl. Like it's not even understood to be transsexual the way we would have thought of a transsexual person when we were younger. So to try and figure out your sexual identity in this youth climate is really, really hard. Yeah, and the key point where you said there about they're trying to figure out whether their sexuality, and you said, you know, a trans girl. A key description of a trans girl is any male who says they're a girl. You, you know what I mean? The, the, there is a key aspect to that that kind of jumps out at me. And I know that the shame that happens to, to teenagers who feel I'm not attracted to somebody and it must mean that I need to kind of re-educate myself because that's, that's non-inclusive and therefore I must be transphobic or I must be, there must be something wrong with me. And it, it does feel that in a bid to kind of free ourselves, we've really gone into children who are really not free. They're in agony. They're in an awful lot of pain. I really think they're in an awful lot of pain, sadly, about their gender identity and about their sexuality. When of all times in all of history, we could be the most liberated. It could be a lovely stage. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure how it so badly was. Was it kind of, the internet that we lost it but how did how are adolescents having such a a crappy introduction to their sexuality and their identity we really have lost it it's really tough I mean I've heard I've heard clients of both genders I mean both sexes female clients and male clients talk about feeling like their attractions are predatory you know, so so there's all kinds of confusion. I mean, I think a lot of young people as their sexuality develops do have some shame around it, like the shame of arousal, the shame of feeling sexually attracted to somebody. But I think young people today um, are really not able to enjoy the excitement and exhilaration of being attracted because there's also this kind of guilt placed on top of that. And on the other hand, they are kind of ushered into sexual explorations that they're probably not actually interested in because of the labels and definitions. So it's really mixed up. It's a very confusing place to be working through this task. And another question that they ask, I went on about who am I? That's the big question uh, of that stage. But the second question is, and what can I be? So who am I and what can I be? And the thing about that is that they are thinking of course they are. Maybe I'll be a nurse. Maybe I'll be a police person, policeman or policewoman. Maybe I'll be a dancer. And they're thinking of that. And our job as adults is not to allow them to foreclose on any identities that they might be. 
our job as adults to make sure that they keep their options open on some level so that they can be who they wish to be when they feel it fit in their 20s. And then suddenly along came kind of the gender identity who said, yeah, foreclose, foreclose. And I'm like, well, no, our whole job is to keep their options open. Just like we don't tend to send great soccer players off to uh, soccer teams at 13 or 14, if at all possible, because it forecloses too early and they mm-hmm. might lose they might lose their kind of other abilities in other lives. We try to keep their options early, open up until at least 18 and they go to college. And even then, the general wisdom is to do a general degree, if at all possible, because you yeah. might go any yeah. direction. Don't specialise yeah. until you're master's. This is common. And suddenly... Like an awful lot of things to do with gender, we suddenly collectively had amnesia about not foreclosing. And we're suddenly saying, oh, yeah, yeah, well, solidify that part of your identity, but everything else, keep your options open. I'm sorry to go on a rant, but it does seem fairly insane. Well, I mean, you're you're also leading us right into another task here, which is the task of, of being able to make judgments. And when you have a young person who does have this intense impulsivity and they're really poor at thinking about long-term consequences or predicting, you know, whether they want to play soccer for the rest of their life or not. I mean, all of these things, that's when it's the parent's job to really again, kind of create those bumper lanes and those guardrails to say, okay, you you really feel convinced that you're transgender. That's fine. This is your identity to explore, but we're not going to solidify this because you have a lot of life to live and you have time to figure things out. And kids are not good at making judgments about long-term things. And I think it's interesting when, you know, you hear the, the professionals really push parents and teachers and, and professionals to let the kid lead the way when everything we know about adolescence is that they're terrible at predicting what's coming down the pipeline. And not only that, and we might do one day an episode on it, but the teenage brain is not developed and the brain is not developed until you're 25. And so their actual, their emotional brain is literally overdeveloped and their analytical wise brain is underdeveloped at that age it's just, that is yeah. actual the facts the physical facts not only that they're more impulsive they're more reckless they're more uh, <laughs> they're they're kind of quite crazy there's a well-known there's a well-known scenario i have it in my book fragile where uh this uh, neuroscientist was studying brains and he had an intern in and she had to develop she had to divide the all these brain scans and uh, the brain scans, there were psychopaths in the brain scans. And there was also ordinary people in the brain scans. And you had to go through each of them. And he said, yeah, put the put the psychopaths' brains to the left and just put the ordinary brains to the right, if you follow me. And he said, but watch out, keep an eye on the age, because if they're teenagers, they'll look like psychopaths on the brain scan. <laughs> this oh, my God. Fact. This is a well-known story in neuroscience. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> because their their emotional brain is so overdeveloped. They're all over the place. It's like, woo, it's zinging. So yeah. not only are they dealing with the um, psychosocial stages of Eric Erickson, they're also with an undeveloped brain. And it's fascinating when you work with young people long term, you can watch it. I mean, you can watch having a client intake at 14 years old, if you're working with them till 18, you see the way they they get better at thinking about, you know, what my actions now might impact me later and learning delayed gratification and and learning how to control their emotions. I mean, it's it's 
it's almost magical, the transformation during adolescence. So they are working on it, but it's not there yet. They don't understand that long-term consequence quite yet. Yeah, and it's a beautiful stage. You know, that, that lovely stage of adolescence, and that's one of the reasons why I love working with teenagers, is that search for truth that they have as a task. They're so idealistic. They really want to find a better world. And they really want to construct a world. They see, they come to kind of a, an understanding of the world. They see the homelessness, they see the pain, mm-hmm. and they want to make it better. There's a lovely idealism that is 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 uh, kind of really relevant to um, the adolescents that we, we can suddenly, we can just think that they're wide-eyed, naive fools rather than thinking, actually, that's where all the beautiful ideas come from. You know, that, that really is the, you know... There's so so much beauty in in the adolescent brain. It is. I mean, the idealism of adolescence can be the seed for developing, you know, an amazing invention or figuring out what your career is going to be. There is something really special about not being jaded quite yet about the world and having these kind of hopeful desires. And I think kids who do tend to be inclined towards um what's fair and not fair about the world, which I think we'll do an episode on giftedness, but gifted kids tend to be very focused on that. You know, gender identity theory has also this piece built in as well, where, you know, there are those who suffer and then those who oppress. And it can be really tempting to try and become, you know, a bit of a martyr. The other side of this idealism is that teenagers sometimes can get wrapped up in the fantasy of persecution, which which I think has something to do with separating from your family. Like you want to have someone to blame. You also, as you become more cognitively developed, you can also recognize some of the things that your parents maybe haven't done perfectly well, because nobody has perfect parents, right? But, but having this sense of persecution of what nobody understands me, you know, school sucks, my parents suck. That's a very normal teenage thing. Um, but I think to, to kind of think about how gender identity plays into this, there's also this uh, myth of parental rejection. We'll link to Lisa Marciano's article about this. But within the trans online circles about supporting trans kids, there's this narrative that's repeated over and over about parents rejecting trans kids. And so it sets up parents as kind of being the enemy in a way. And so you see also uh, how easy it is for kids to kind of turn against their parents and and almost forget the years and years of loving support that the family has provided because the parents don't agree to saying this or that pronoun, for example. Yeah, and coupled with that, one of the tasks of the adolescent during this stage is around uh, handling authority. And queer theory was really made perfectly for this stage between the, you know, strengthening sexual identity, developing new ideas, searching for truth, you know, social context and handling authority and kind of, you know, snubbing authority in a way is, is what they often do. And uh, it, it's, it's extraordinarily fitting for the child when they come across things like queer theory and gender identity that they're like this is it this is every it's feeding everything that i need and parental <laughs> alienation sadly is a part of it 
And that's why it's so devastating, because it's not only that they're they're closing you down because they're going through that psychosocial stage anyway, but they're also being actively alienated from the parents because they're being told your parents are transphobic and watch out. If you feel close to them, watch out, because that means they're getting in on you and you really need to be wary of them because they're transphobic. So it's, it's a very, very, very um, destructive to the parent-child relationship at that point. Mm-hmm. There are also kind of organizations and, and adults who will say like, we'll be your new family and your chosen family. Like there's a lot of talk in LGBT about this kind of surrogate family that you can create. The glitter family, with, they call them. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, I know that, you know, growing up in the eighties, there were certainly stories of people who came out as gay, lesbian or trans whose families outright did reject them. So there is a place for, you know, being able to create your own sense of family and community and love somewhere outside of your family of origin. But to tell 12 year olds that if their parents don't use the right pronouns, that they don't support them and they're transphobic, it's a complete um, distortion of that concept of trying to create a family outside of your family of origin. Yeah. It's it's really, really, it's really hard on parents who feel mm-hmm. so dumped and so, so kind of like the relationship is broken down and how do I get back? It's very hard yeah. to go through adolescence anyway with your, with your child as a parent. Put on gender issues and her parental alienation and queer theory, put all that into the mix and you've really got a really difficult time. It's, it's really hard for the family. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about young adulthood, because oftentimes adolescence is described up to 18. But I've heard you make this really astute point that young adulthood is a time that deserves a lot more attention. And we're certainly not fully formed in young adulthood either. And, you know, I've seen that sometimes I think that the peak age of kids coming out as trans seems to be about 15. I don't know if that seems right for you, but based on kind of data I'm looking at. But I also know there's a whole cohort of kids that don't really start questioning their gender until they're in their late, late teens, early 20s. So what do you think about that period in life? I think it's a really unstudied area that I think we need to give an awful lot more attention to. I think when they go to college, an awful lot of children think right that's it new me and off I go and uh, if it doesn't go well it can derail people for 10 years if that college experience doesn't Mm -hmm. go well it can be so frightening and so unsettling and it's interesting Eric Erickson who wrote you know who studied who developed the theories of psychosocial development he wrote a biography on Gandhi and he also wrote a biography on Martin Luther both brilliant men both heroes geniuses and he, he very much studied how they were lost in their 20s. They were very lost. Eric Erickson himself was lost in his 20s. So he has an awful lot of time and respect for the fact that that lost place of the 20s can be vital. And I, I kind of think the system is set up. It was a beautiful system. You go to school, then you go to college to specialize. And it was a beautiful system, but it's it's been mangled. And now it's a very pressurizing mm-hmm. system. And I meet so many kids, so many children, especially these days with COVID and all that, who are 
really cracking up in college, who are really finding it a very scary, unsettling, alienating place to be. And I, I, I really think we're not giving enough support to them. We give them an awful lot of attention and then they're 18 and suddenly they close up, they're at home and they don't know where they are. They don't know whether they're an adult or a, a child or a, what they're supposed to be. I, I've noticed in America, now that I'm getting to know so many Americans, that the, the financial bond that the parents have with the child seems to go on into the middle 20s or something really, to me, very dysfunctional. Because it's like, are they mm. ever going to be free from their parents? It just seems really inappropriate to me. That's interesting. So in Ireland, do people just have more of a kind of clarity around what's the quote cutoff date or, yeah. or how does it work? Very definitely. There isn't this kind of frankly ingenious schemes to keep you um umbilically attached financially with your parents. You really an awful lot of parents would be presumed to pay towards college, but the college fees wouldn't be very expensive in comparison to America. And also the child would be expected to get a job to pay for their 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 kind of their extras. So the parent might pay for the, the the rental, the you know the rental of the apartment and maybe their their college fees, which aren't very much, maybe four four thousand or something, but each year. But the the child will pay for their food and drink type thing, and then by the time they leave college, up and Adam, there you go, you're on your own. Good luck, <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's the system. And I think it's good. Yeah, that's what it should be. I, I'm shocked by all these. I think it's really inappropriate for adults to be living with their parents. And I think it causes a huge amount of distress. I think it causes a huge amount of of of, of confusion and emotional turbulence in the family. And it would be better if we lived in a system where young adults were living in slightly grotty apartments rather than living in luscious homes and treating their parents like crap. <laughs> well, you know, I... So I'm kind of like a bicultural person because in in kind of my culture of origin, it is very normal for kids to live at home almost forever. Um, and, you know, where my, my boyfriend's family is from Kuwait, which is a small Gulf country. And what they do is they build ginormous homes. And when you get married, you go live in a different floor of the home oh of your God. husband. So this kind of cross-generational enmeshment is really common in different cultures. And I remember when I was in my early 20s, I lived in a crappy apartment with a roommate and it was the best time of my life. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Um, I mean, my family has kind of integrated some of the Western perspective and some of the Egyptian perspective in terms of how I was scaffolded to financial independence. But I I do think that there's sometimes a struggle for our kids, because we do obviously live and work in the West here, to become independent from their parents. And they have a hard time just like what we talked about earlier, they're sometimes overly compliant. They don't know how to make a decision without mom and dad. And then, of course, you transfer that into their early 20s. And they still are these kind of perfect kids who don't want to displease anybody. And they also are kind of under mom and dad's thumb because they're financially dependent on them. And they are kind of very involved in their college life. You know, my sister is a college professor, and she tells me that sometimes parents of her college age students email her 
asking to kind of intervene on behalf of their children. So there is a crisis of separation from the family that is idiosyncratic with the culture. Like if that was happening in, in, you know, the Arab world, it may not be so weird, but within America, within our context here in the West and in Canada, when you have a 20 something year old who cannot make a decision without mom and dad's help, I do think there's a problem. I remember a friend of mine who's, who's a lecturer, a college lecturer in Ireland, and I, I wrote the book Cottonwool Kids very much around that and talking about how sadly childhood has been reduced, so it's finished at eight or nine. Adolescence has been extended, the worst part, so it's from nine until 27. And so we're getting the worst of both worlds here. But I remember this college uh, lecturer friend of mine saying that, you know, this guy had been late for his exam. He didn't get up and he didn't go to his exam. And his parent intervened and she caused an awful lot of trouble. And eventually the child was given, OK, 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 we'll give you another opportunity to do your exam. <laughs> yeah. He was given the opportunity to do his exam and he slept in. <laughs> <gasps> And you can imagine him just, I know the type, rolls his eyes saying, oh, my mother will sort something out, you know. (laughs) And, you know, if you feel if you feel like that, you also feel trapped. Yeah. Because nothing is more disempowering than having no autonomy of your own. And part of what I think happens with this gender identity thing is it's a way to stake your claim. It's a way to have a little power over your life. And so I often recommend to parents, create other healthy opportunities for this young person to be autonomous and to make their own way, because then they may find that the the power of the identity just loosens a little bit. That's such a key point. And I think it's the most the most appropriate kind of um offering we could give parents who are grappling with adolescence, late adolescents coming into their 20s, they've lost themselves in gender and it seems inappropriate. Try to give them other paths to become an adult, other paths yeah. to, to find their strength and to find their kind of own path, because it might be just a rejection of you in a very clumsy way and they don't know how to be an adult. And this is their adulting. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.